Good morning. Our reading of the word today comes from Genesis 29, 1-30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well were the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks were gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was the shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his, brother's, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The grass withers and the flowers fade. So that's what, this is going to be a, a Valentine's message. <laughs> so hope you caught that. Planned that perfectly. Um, I do. I occasionally want to do this, and I know I've probably said that. I've, I occasionally like to just give thanks for certain people in our church, just affirming them. And I know I've probably done this with Stephen before. But even as I look up here at this crowd that's up on this stage, I can't help but to look back almost seven years now to see like where I literally had to beg people to come and lead worship for us, this small little church plant. And it got, it got so bad that I would have to get my brother to lead worship for us. And admittedly, he would say, bottom of the barrel. And so if, if that ever happens, if you ever see Corey up here, you know that a great tragedy has happened in our church. <laughs> So, 
Yeah. <laughs> so I am so thankful for Stephen. Thank you, brother, for your faithfulness. Stephen doesn't do this full time. He has a job that he works 40, 50 hours a week, and he and he is he has gathered these people to use their gifts in that way. And we have a violin player. Lindsay's killing it up there on the violin. Which Lindsay? Yeah, that's awesome. So thankful for that. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have uh, gathered us once again in your name on this Sunday, this Sabbath day, um, that, that you have given to us to do the very thing that we are doing right now. So God, I pray that we would continue uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would um, be reminded of the goodness of your providence um, as we look again at Jacob's life. Um, help us to, to be able to even apply that to our own life uh, this morning. So keep us free of distraction. God, help us to focus upon your word. Um, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So here in our text this morning, we find ourselves in a place that uh, you you may not have caught it back in chapter 25, verse 20, um, but that the author Moses had already foreshadowed for us. When he mentions in 2520, Rebecca's brother Laban. It's a very quick kind of, you probably missed it in that. But he brings up Laban. And this is the same Laban we are meeting in Genesis chapter 29. So here you have Laban's nephew, Rebecca's son, Jacob, 80 plus years later, arriving at his uncle's doorstep. Unless we forget... Or to think that that Jacob has somehow orchestrated all this. This is where God wants Jacob to be. This is no mistake. Yet Jacob is still not believing in the God of his fathers in a a heart-changing way. Jacob still believes himself to be the master of his fate. And that God is only someone who is kind of helping him master his fate. God is not central In Jacob's life yet. So we heard last week in chapter 28, after God has come to him in in a dream, Hunter uh, uh, beautifully uh, showed us this last week in his preaching, but after God has come to, to Jacob in a dream, Jacob's response is not humble repentance before God. He is not repenting of all of the sins that he's committed up to this point and turning around and truly worshiping God. Rather, his his response is an arrogant bargain with God. He says, "If, If God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then... Then the Lord shall be my God. So essentially what he's saying without saying it is, if God doesn't do this, if he doesn't do do these things according to the way I have them laid out, then the Lord shall not be my God. What arrogance Jacob has here. After all God has already done for him up to this point. And as Hunter pointed out out to us last week, Jacob's attitude is, is one of contract with God, not a binding, loving covenant with God. And so what develops here in chapter 29 is what you might call uh, a little poetic justice. Jacob is going to get a taste of his own medicine. 
And what this reveals to us, even though he's not present in the text, is that God is not absent from Jacob's life. God has not left Jacob. He is still at work fulfilling his good promises to his people. So I started reading uh, this week uh, the letters of John Newton. Uh, He was a pastor. If you don't know who John Newton was, he was a pastor in England in the 18th century. But he's probably most famously known for writing the hymn, Amazing Grace. And in his first three letters um, that he wrote, uh, John Newton is articulating to a friend his view on what he calls a progressive work of grace. A progressive work of grace. He is using uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 28 that Miranda read for us earlier that says, The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And so John Newton goes on to say that the Lord leads his people effectually and savingly to the knowledge of the same essential truths in a variety of methods. Meaning, the manner in which God used to to bring me to saving faith in Christ is different from the manner he brought you to that same saving faith. And it's different in the way uh, he brings Jacob compared to his father and his grandfather. And I know that I've, I've heard enough uh, of your stories in member interviews and over coffee or lunch or coming over to our house for dinner to be able to say with confidence, I've never heard the same story from two different people. It's always different. And what this means is there is no set formula in which someone comes to faith in Christ. There is no set formula uh, to someone coming to a deeper understanding of who God is. And I would say just let that be an encouragement and a comfort to you if you're still praying for your kids to come to faith in Christ. And it might look hard. Your kids might be older or whatever, and they might be straying away from the faith. Or you have a husband or a wife that you're praying to grow in a deeper relationship with God. Or you may be praying for a parent or a friend or a classmate or someone else who's close to you. Let me just say, God's answer probably won't come in the way you think it will or imagine it will. It's it's truly the Lord's work in the Lord's way, right? And we see this in Jacob's life. And today we witness just another step in his life in this progressive work of God's grace. So this part of the story can can be divided naturally into two parts, so that's how we're going to look at it today. And, And I want to emphasize God's continued work in the line of the promise by looking at two things. One is God's quiet providence in verses 1 through 14. And two, God's ordered affairs. So one, God's quiet, quiet providence, and then secondly, in verses 15 through 30, God's ordered affairs. So first, God's quiet providence. As believers, we, uh, we don't view the events of Jacob's life as mere coincidence. We're not looking at his life and going, Wow, that is, that, is, that is great how all of this is kind of working out. That is not how we do it as, as Christians. At least we shouldn't, theologically speaking. 
nor should we do this in our own life. Nothing is serendipitous. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is just by fate. It is all by God's providence. Because if you miss the working of God's providence, you miss out on the ways in which God is orchestrating his good plan in every aspect of your life. Now, it may not look pretty, uh, it may be like all over the place, and you'd be right, it probably is all over the place. I know uh, Francis Schaeffer's wife, Edith Schaefer, has this great illustration in one of her books um, describing their ministry, and she describes the, the work of the Christian life or the work that God is doing in your life is like if you flipped over a, um, a really nice rug, what you would see is, to the naked eye, is chaos, threads going every which way. It looks a mess. It looks like nothing beautiful could come out of it until you flip the rug back over. And it's this beautiful Persian rug or whatever it might be. That is the way in which God is working out his good providence in your life. It may not look beautiful now, but he's doing a good work in you. So what is God's providence? So I've pulled from two places to help us with this definition, to help us with our understanding. One is from one of the catechisms that we like to to go through. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. And it asks this question. What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is this. The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Next from the Westminster Confession of Faith of Providence. God the the great creator of all things doth uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's God's providence. We can take both of these explanations of God's providence and overlay them onto Jacob's life and allow them to bring into sharp focus God's quiet providence that is rippling through this man's life. This was not due in part to anything of Jacob. This was not due in part to anything of Rachel or of Isaac's actions. It is all of God. The Puritan writer John Flavel said in his book, The Mystery of Providence, if we had had our own option, we could not have chosen for ourselves as providence has done. Let me read that again. If we had had our own option, if God would have just allowed us to do whatever it is we wanted and we we wanted to orchestrate our own life, we could not have chosen for ourselves as providence has done. And I can just say, it would not be as good. It would not be as glorious as what you have right now. So I'm sure most of us in this room could say that, whether you like the life you have or not, whether you're in a a prospering place or you're in the valley, 
you would never have orchestrated it in the same way that God has done. Never. And this is Jacob's story. Even though he hasn't fully realized it yet, God is orchestrating this beautiful plan in Jacob's life. And in 29, 1-14, through 14, we're witnessing God laying out for him not only the place that he needs to be with his uncle Laban, but with the people he needs to meet. And that includes Laban, but that also includes his future wife, Rachel. And so we understand that more fully when we compare the events in, cha- in chapter 29, verses 1-14, through 14, to the events that took place in chapter 24. So if you remember... Chapter 24 is where Abraham sends his servant to uh, his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. So Abraham sends his servant out. He says, go to my homeland because I don't want a wife for Isaac coming from the Canaanites. Sounds familiar. So you have a very similar matchmaking ordeal uh, where Wells and flocks are all involved. It's, it's almost eerily exactly the same. And you also have Laban present. He's also present with, with, uh, with uh, Abra- Abraham's servant as well. But the marked difference, the marked difference between these two stories is that there is no direct reference to God in chapter 29 like there is in chapter 24 which shouldn't be surprising, uh, since we have two different men in two different places in God's progressive work of grace. So on the one hand, you have Abraham in chapter 15 that says he has believed the Lord and his promises, and the Lord has counted to him as righteousness. We would say that this is his conversion experience. He has come to faith in Christ, and now he acts out of that belief. Jacob, on the other hand, is not there yet. But what Moses, the author, is doing here is he's showing his readers that even though Jacob hasn't believed like his grandfather yet, God is still at work in his life. His quiet providence surrounds Jacob as it does all of you. God is at work and has been at work in your life even if you don't want to acknowledge it yet. Even if it's hard to see. This is why Jesus can say to the scribe in Mark 12 when he answers Jesus wisely, if you remember this, uh, if you're doing the same Bible reading plan I am, you probably just read this, but Jesus, this is a scribe that comes to him and asks him what's the, you know, all these questions trying to stump him and Jesus turns it on him as he does and asks him questions and, and the man answers rightly. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Or when Paul in Acts, and if you know anything about Paul, he was, he was a murderer. He persecuted Christians. He persecuted the church relentlessly. He was the best at it. He was a professional uh, persecutor. And so Paul in Acts, when he is speaking in Rome and, and he's interacting with the crowd and he sees a, a, a statue uh, that is addressed to, a, to an unknown God, Paul says to those around him, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then he goes on to share the gospel with them. 
He is actually not far from each one of us. So Jesus and Paul both are expressing this sentiment to their pagan listeners. God is near you. God is near you. Now there is one clue. There's lots of clues. But one clue in verse 1 that shows us that Jacob wasn't completely out of the loop to God's presence. So after he receives his promise in, uh, in chapter 28, uh, chapter 29.1 says this. Look there with me. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now that might not sound like much. That might just sound like coordinates. Like, okay, that's where he was heading. He is going to, to the land. That's where we wanted him to be. So another helpful way this verse can be translated is like this. And Jacob picked up his feet and went to the land of the east. And so one commentator says this. After the vision from God at Bethel, Jacob now has a new spring in his step. Esau no longer concerned him. Now he was on a mission with the Lord's promise and protection. So Jacob was at least aware of God's leading him, even though he doesn't respond to God's leading in the way his grandfather's servant does in chapter 24. If you remember that, there's a couple of times that this servant acknowledges God's leading through worship. He says, the God of my master has led me here. The God of of Abraham has, has provided this woman for his son. Not so in Jacob's story. This is something that is missing in, his part, in this part of the story, and, and that is acknowledging God's providential care for him. Because when God is at work and when he is on the move, even quietly, we are meant to respond to that. So going back to John Flavel, who says that our duty toward God's providence is to meditate on God's providence, to meditate on God's providence. This is what he writes. He says, It is to be the duty of the people of God to meditate upon these performances of providence for them at all times, but especially in times of difficulty and trouble, because we tend to forget God's providence in difficulty and trouble. We say, how can that be good? But especially in those times. So for God's work of providence concerning the creatures, we are called to consider them, that we may prop up our faith by those considerations for our own supplies. So meditate often and long on God's providential care of you because he is doing that. Don't do as Jacob who misses this opportunity and and gets way overly excited uh, concerning what is, is happening right in front of his faith and then he forgets to meditate on how God has been leading him all along. Because while Jacob is excited at God's leading and blessing and you can see that even in the eagerness that he has to remove the stone from the well so that all of these flocks can be watered and then even when his um, future wife, also his cousin, it's another story for another day, but even when she approaches him, he lays a kiss on her because he's so excited that God is blessing him. Yet there are still matters unsettled in his life. 
that God has not forgotten and must be dealt with. Which is what we'll see in our second and final point, God's ordained affairs in 15 through 30. So if you remember, Jacob did not get to Laban's land uh, the way Abraham did. Jacob has lied, he's cheated, and he's deceived his way up to this point. And by God's mysterious providence, he has used it all to draw Jacob to this exact place. But that doesn't let Jacob off the hook for what he's done. God can still bless you, but he can also remind you and discipline you uh, because of your sin. As one commentator titled this section, it's a long title, God will effectively discipline his people by making them painfully aware of their sins. Now before you begin thinking, well, that's not fair. Uh, why can't God let bygones be bygones? Why, why can't he let Jacob slide? Things, to, things seem to be uh, going in the way that, that he wants. Uh, why not forgive and forget, God? Why would you continue to hassle this man? Yet what we miss in ignorant statements like this is that while God does forgive us our sin, and he does, it doesn't erase sin's consequences. Just think of people like King David in the Bible. It is said of David that he was a man after God's own heart. He wrote most of the Psalms that we sing and that we pray and that we read. But David also suffered the consequences of his sin. If you remember, David is also an adulterer and a murderer. And his sin, the consequences of his sin, ripple out through his family and his kingdom. So much so that his, his, his child dies, um, turmoil with his daughter, his, his own son tries to, tries to kill him and to take the throne from him. Or the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who we would say after Jesus is one of the greatest people who've ever, who's ever lived. In Acts 9, when Jesus tells Ananias, when, when Ananias expressed concern about receiving Paul, he's like, man, I have heard about Paul, Jesus. He is persecuting us. Why would you allow him to come into our midst? And Jesus tells him, for I will show you how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then you have explicit references in Scripture that say, in Proverbs 22, 8, whoever, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. And that's not, that's not just for unbelievers. If you sow injustice, you will reap the calamity that it brings. Or Hosea 8, 7, who poetically says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. And Jacob, for the next few chapters will feel every piece of what these two verses are saying. And it all begins with this subtle hint that our author throws in there in verse 16 that says this. Now Laban had two daughters. That's the hint. Now Laban had two daughters. So this should have planted a seed in Jacob's mind of everything that just went down with his brother Esau. 
Because the pattern of sibling rivalry is a theme that we see throughout Genesis. We'll continue to see it as we, as we, uh, as we work our way through Genesis in, in Joseph and his brothers. And Rachel and Leah's relationship fits nicely within this pattern, as we'll see in coming chapters. They are at war with each other. And Uncle Laban, Daddy Laban, is the human conductor whom God ordains in Jacob's life to orchestrate these actions. One commentator said that Laban secretly gives the unloved Leah to the man in love was, to be sure, a monstrous blow, a masterpiece of shameless treachery. Because not only is he deceiving Jacob, who rightly deserves it, he's also deceiving his sister, his, his two, both of his daughters, Leah and Rachel. I mean, he is a master at this. And so it's here in verses 21 through 28 that the deceiver, Jacob, is deceived by this master. Jacob has met his match in Laban and begins to, to feel some of the consequences of his sin. And you'll notice there are, there are some similarities to this whole situation to Jacob's own experience with Esau. With Jacob and Esau, God cuts against the grain of culture and says the older will serve the younger. That was an odd uh, thing to happen in that period of time. But with Leah and Rachel, it is the same cultural reality that Laban uses against Jacob with his older daughter. So Laban even explains this to Jacob in verse 26, after Jacob is, is just, uh, he, is, he is angry that he has been deceived by this man, and he can't believe that this injustice is happening to him, and so he confronts him over his deception, and Laban says to him simply, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. I mean, what a slap in the face for Jacob. What, a, what, a, what, a, what a, a bucket of cold water that has been splashed upon his face at this point in time. I mean, he had to be experiencing some deja vu here. It would not surprise me to learn, uh, to talk to Jacob one day, that he had a flashback to his own deception of his, uh, not only his older brother, but also his father. And so what this should convey to you and I is that if social convention is to be bypassed, it should come about by God, not by your own deception or by any other means. So I'll say this from experience. If you have to force your will uh, uh, to work in any given situation that you are in, if, you're just, if you feel like you're just kind of pushing it and forcing it, and it, does, it seems like it's a square peg going into a round hole, it's probably not of the Lord. I've done that multiple times in my life. It's what Jacob did. And now this event in his life, with all of its ironic undertones, was the beginning of God's rebuke and discipline of Jacob. So going back to some objections that, may, uh, that some may have with this situation and, and try to claim that uh, from this text that, you see, God is a vengeful God. God just, just he's bloodthirsty. He, he is just waiting as just this kind of cosmic killjoy to, to crack down uh, upon the heads of his people. He is out to get people. 
Maybe that's your view of God. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe you think the God of the Old Testament, this fits his description perfectly. Wrathful, vengeful. So let me just flip the switch on you here and say, for God not to deal with Jacob over his sin would actually be more unloving than what he is currently doing to him. How so? Because in this discipline, God is showing Jacob what C.S. Lewis has called his severe mercy. And in his severe mercy, God is drawing Jacob to himself. He is not, what he's, what he's doing is he is not allowing Jacob to lose his soul. He's holding on to him. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, it's a pretty famous quote, you've probably heard it before, but he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Have you ever experienced God's shouting? Maybe, maybe you're currently being roused by this. And if you have, or you're currently in the midst of that, be thankful for that. The author of Hebrews reminds us why we should be thankful. He said, My son or daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. You see, this act, this is an act of love towards Jacob. Jacob was a son of God. And God is using this event in, Jacob, uh, in Jacob's life to turn Jacob's heart to the God of his fathers. Is this how you view pain and suffering in your own life? If not, I would uh, encourage you to allow God's word to turn your understanding of this upside down. The Tara pointed me to one of my favorite quotes by Frederick Buechner today. If you follow her on Instagram, that was, it was on her Instagram story. See, that's the, that is one good thing about social media. So, but it embodies this well. Frederick Buechner says, Whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it is, it is, well, it is well to pay the closest attention they are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. So maybe the current suffering you're experiencing is because of sin. Maybe that's what it is. And if so, a direct application of this would be to repent of whatever sin it might be and then to give God praise for his severe mercy towards you. Because whatever hurt you're experiencing from your sin is to bring you back to God. Or maybe you're like Job. I'm also in Job now. Sitting in your pain and you don't know why. Like Job and you don't know what God is doing. And so you do as Job did in chapter 1 verses 20 through 22 when the calamities start to pile up on him. And he says... Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. You don't have to shave your head. And fell on the ground and worshipped. 
do that. Fall on the ground and worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's your response. And in both cases, we learn what Jacob himself will eventually learn, and that is, God ordains our affairs, and his providence is always directed toward the good of his people, and ultimately, to God's glory. That he uses these situations to, to find, our, that we find ourselves in at times as his progressive work of grace in our life. That he is moving you a little bit, a little bit along in your story. That he is, as the unicorn says in C.S. Lewis's last battle, drawing us further up and further in into the truth and reality of the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.